Hi, I'm Malak Fuad, and thank you for joining me on What I Did Next from ANT Media. I welcome a new guest each episode, and we take a deep dive into their personal journeys, exploring the twists and turns their lives have taken to understand what these pivotal moments mean. On today's episode, entrepreneur and investor Rami Adib tells me how important risk-taking has been in his career. I don't subscribe to regretting, but if there is one thing I regret is not taking enough risks in life. Wow. And, I, and I've seen founders across my career who are truly, truly are risk takers. And they are willing to take risks at way more uh, frequency uh, than I do. Um, and I think, and, and they're willing to sort of uh, convince themselves of things that are not true, but then in the process, they become true. Are you as risk conscious or, or, or savvy now that you have a family than you were then when you were single and you had no commitments, no responsibility? Or are you now a little bit more conservative? I do think I've gotten more conservative a little bit with time, but also more appreciative of risk-taking. And I, and I also think I've become more aware of the importance of psychology in managing it all. Rami Adib is the founder and managing partner of 1984 Ventures, a firm that specializes in providing seed funding to startups. Rami's story is quintessential what I did next. Passing through boarding school Harvard and Stanford, Rami went on to have early jobs at Microsoft, working in Silicon Valley as an investor with Husla Ventures, and launched his own startup, Snippet, which was acquired by Yahoo in 2013. Rami offers insights into a world that is often imbued with glamour and power, but is also relatively opaque to someone like me. Rami's is the story of a boy who grabbed at life when an amazing opportunity presented itself and hasn't let go since. He grew up in Egypt, but moved to Canada for high school at the age of 16. You know, I was born in 1978, so we're talking mainly about Egypt in, in, in the late 80s is when I really came, came of age and then early 90s. Uh, my parents both at the time worked for the government. Uh, my father was... Uh, he had a PhD in engineering uh, and was a, a, a lieutenant general and then my mom was uh, was a was Aura, uh, in uh, she was an engineer um, uh, and uh, she was uh, working for the Ministry of Irrigation. Obviously, Egypt was was open to the world to a great extent, right? This was not you know this was not the sixties uh, or, or 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 the seventies for that matter. Uh, you had access a lot to what was happening outside. Um, and my parents traveled a lot for work uh, outside of Egypt, but it was still things were still a little bit closed because this was pre-internet. Uh, and so, as a child, I always had this imagination of what what does the world look like outside of Egypt? Uh, you know, I used to collect uh, stamps uh, specifically, which is a very common hobby for Egyptian kids at the time. Stamps and coins. I was a stamp collector too as a child. Yeah, I did it with my dad. It was such a beautiful hobby because it, it, you know, when you don't have a, an access to the world, you, you see a stamp, and a stamp is a is a representation of a country. You know, it says India on it, and you're like, wow, this thing is from so far away, and it has a picture, and it has a, the you know, the picture of King George or Queen Victoria, and why is that? And and it, it, it teaches so much about the world, and I think as a curious kid. That was definitely a um, window to the world, uh, and and a lot of people in my in my family, had, you know, had over years. My uncle, my cousin, had went abroad when they finished their undergrad or masters. They would get a PhD uh, from my uncle, uh, and then and then lived abroad. and And there was all this dream of of, of education uh, overseas uh, for me, um, and but it was really associated with perhaps graduate degrees. 
I never really thought of going to high school abroad. Um, but I really, by a, a bunch of random coincidence, I, I learned of this organization called United World College uh, that were giving the student to one student from each country uh, to and, and, and to live abroad together for the sake of promoting international understanding and tolerance. Um, and I, I, at the beginning, I thought like maybe the whole thing is a scam, but I really applied to it and was very fortunate to, to get the scholarship. And uh, that was a story of leaving Egypt. And you went to Canada. I went to Canada. Uh, and I left Cairo and showed up at a school in the middle of the forest by the ocean with 200 students from 90 countries. It was, it was mind blowing. Wow. And how did it feel to be far away from home? How did, how did your parents feel about letting you do that? You know, my um, mom, I think it was, it was really hard on my mom. And I told my parents I'm going to apply. And my mom, my, my dad was like, oh, sounds great. And my mom was like, no, no, you're not going to leave. And then my dad told my mom, look, it's pro probably the whole thing is a scam. Just, you know, you don't want to stand on his way and just have, him for the, you know, have him for the rest of his life say, like, I was going to Canada and you like prevented me from going. And so I applied for the first exam and there was like a thousand people. And then I was very fortunate to get to the second round and there was fewer people. And then the third round, actually, they met my family. And so all of a sudden, my parents became part of this uh, and they got really excited both rooting for me to win, but scared of me from winning it. And I still remember to this day when my mom, she came in and said, did you hear anything? And I said, yes, you know, I, I got the scholarship. I remember her saying, you know, Mabrukia Habibi, and then running to her room, closing the door and crying. Oh, Rami. I know. it was That's so touching. I know. It was probably, to me, it was a, a moment that tells so much about just a mother's sacrifice uh, love for her son and sacrifice for for him. That's very touching. So tell me a little bit. How was the experience at boarding school? Were you did you fit in easily? Was it uh, was it a struggle? Did you find yourself very different to everyone coming out of Egypt? Uh, you know, at the age of sixteen, not having lived anywhere else. What was that experience like? Oh my God, it was mind blowing, um, and it put so many of my preconceived notions about myself and about the world to test. So, so think about the Egypt I grew up in. Um, you know, there was a sort of a, a rising tide of religiosity yeah. uh, during sort of the late 80s, early 90s. Um, and, and, and the whole discourse is about like religion is at the epicenter of everything. And, and your identity sort of is shaped by that to a great extent. But then I go to Canada and, I re and I'm in this international place and nobody thinks about religion at all. And instead they think about culture about language and you find that everybody is christian but the person i can relate to the most by far are the egyptians and the jordanians and the palestinians uh and these are the the people i can speak with i can relate to i have a shared culture and it immediately hit, hits me at that point that identity is is a, is a lot less about you know what you are and a lot more about what you're not or how you're different from your surroundings um, and in Canada, when, when myself and, and my closest friend who was Palestinian and my closest friend who was, who was Lebanese, uh, who came from three very different, you know, religious backgrounds in the Middle East uh, and very different socioeconomic backgrounds, really bonded together because, because that's sort of what we had in common against this, this sea of, of foreignness. Um, the other thing that probably hit me is, again, you know, how ill-conceived a lot of my perceptions of, of others were. I, I had never met... Uh, you know, an atheist or, or a gay person and, 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 and to meet those folks who were, uh, who had these identities that were so strange to mine 
really made me question just again it just makes you question so many of your values and uh and and, and so much of of what you were taught to believe but i really loved it and it was a uh truly a single most defining experience in in, in my life and certainly pivotal in the sense that it then propelled you to the next phase um which was uh going to harvard there's this fantastic movie which you might have seen from the 90s with Gwyneth Paltrow, I think it's called Sliding Doors, where she glimpses what her life could have been if she didn't take a certain path. And I wonder, you know, we all have those moments. And actually, that's very much the basis of what this particular show is about, what I did next. And I wonder, I'm sure you've wondered, you know, if you hadn't gone to that boarding school, would you have had that opportunity to apply for Harvard? Um, you know, these kinds of things I always find really interesting. What was Harvard like for you and what did you study there? Uh, so I loved computers. Uh, you know, I had this incredible, uh, just, I, I used to draw computers in my art class. It's a little bit geeky, <laughs> uh, but, but that's what I love to do. Well, first I told my dad, actually, this is a funny story. I told my dad I want to study computer science. And he's like, you know, like it's not engineering. Why don't you just study electrical engineering? I'm like, no, I want to do computer science. It's science. And my dad had the best answer ever. He said, no, no, no. If it has the word science, like political science, <laughs> social science, you know, these are not sciences. The real sciences are called physics or chemistry or math. And I love that line yeah. because if you have to qualify it, it's probably that's not right. Real. That's right. I ended up doing computer science anyway. But, but I was really drawn to all the liberal arts classes, right? I took classes in economics. I took classes in history. I took classes in music. Uh, and I think that liberal arts education um, is certainly something that I, that, that really shaped, I mean, obviously I had an aptitude to it. Yeah. Right. So since I was a kid, I loved reading, but it really made me thrive. I think that's where the American university system is at its best, where you can have, you go in to do one thing, which is very technical or scientific and it, and you have the option to study everything else under the sun at the same time. And I think that's so exciting about being in that system and and opens your horizons in a way that, you know, um, you, nothing else does. And, and it's amazing you took advantage of that. And how did that then propel you to your next phase? What happened for you after college? I, I had my dream in life was to get a job at Microsoft, right? That was what every sort of Egyptian computer scientist wished. And in my junior year in college, I got my internship at Microsoft and I went to Seattle and you know, was an engineer working on Dreamcast and had a great time there. Went back to my senior year and I was seriously considering joining Microsoft. But then all my friends, and then again, this was sort of the, the immigrant mentality because I, I had just come to the US and the idea is you go for the safer job. But all my friends who obviously were, you know, born in the US, a lot more risk willing, uh, were all told me, Rami, what are you doing on a Microsoft? Dude, you should be in Silicon Valley. Like, you know, you're going to become a gazillionaire in no time. And like, we're going to work on a startup. What are we order. talking here? We're talking like 2002 at this point? This is 1999. Oh, so pre-bust. Pre-bust, exactly. So the hide the heyday, yeah. It was the heyday. And so I took a flight to San to California, uh, you know, and there was one startup that was called Tell Me that was one of the most exciting startups at the time that was founded by a bunch of uh, actually Harvard alums. Uh, and they were recruiting heavily from Harvard and they had recruited some of the top students in my class. So I figured this was who I should follow. Uh, and I ended up joining this startup uh, and did not take the, the sort of the safe job from Microsoft and instead took the, uh, the sort of the riskier path. 
And mind you, you know, I had, obviously I needed a visa and so I needed a more stable place to work and, and so forth. Um, and it was lower pay, but I did get a sense when I visited San Francisco that those startups, so it's small community of people building something bigger than themselves, there was an entirely different energy, entirely different passion and excitement than what existed at the larger companies. When we come back in a moment, Rami tells me how his first venture, Snippet, came out of the 2011 Arab Spring. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about our bonus episodes, available exclusively for subscribers. On each bonus episode, I take a deeper dive into my guests' industries, and I share some extra parts from our conversation. For example, actor and comedian Rami Youssef told me about his thoughts on cancel culture, and ex-anchor and now author Hala Gorani told me her thoughts on the future of journalism. All of these great stories are only available on our bonus episodes, so subscribe now to unlock this amazing extra content. You can subscribe in Apple Podcasts by clicking the subscribe button or on our website and get instant access to all our bonus episodes with a two-week free trial. And now, back to the show. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about our bonus episodes, available exclusively for subscribers. On each bonus episode, I take a deeper dive into my guests' industries, and I share some extra parts from our conversation. For example, actor and comedian Rami Youssef told me about his thoughts on cancel culture, and ex-anchor and now author Hala Gorani told me her thoughts on the future of journalism. All of these great stories are only available on our bonus episodes, so subscribe now to unlock this amazing extra content. You can subscribe in Apple Podcasts by clicking the subscribe button or on our website and get instant access to all our bonus episodes with a two-week free trial. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to my conversation with Rami Adib. Before the break, Rami was telling me about his move to California to work for Tell Me Networks. Now, this was at the height of the tech bubble. So what happens next? I come out here in June of 2000, and I love my job. And then within three months, the entire tech bubble bursts. There was a stock, massive stock market crash. The valuations were too high. Companies were laying people off left and right. Companies were going out of business. Uh, and even I personally, uh, you know, I had, uh, when I first joined the company, I was given these stock options. And in order to buy the stock options, I needed $18,000. So, so I ended up taking a credit card loan to exercise, to wow. buy these options. But, but then the stock market crashed and these options became worth a penny. So literally within three months or four months, I had $18,000 of credit card debt because I bought $100 worth of, worth of shares. And you might think that that would have turned me off against the horror startup ecosystem. But I really think when, when you get times of, 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 of bust like this, the tourists leave, but the ones who truly believe stay. You know, I wasn't here because it was a bubble. I was here because I've loved computers and I loved the internet and I loved building software. And this was a place to be. And what was the attraction for you? Was it the idea that you're building something from scratch or is it the attraction that um, you're your own boss? Was that part of the attraction that you're your own? You're not you're not uh, responsible or you're not um, answerable to someone else? No, to me, it was about building uh, and about the speed with which a startup can operate. Uh, so I wasn't a founder of Tell Me. I was a very early engineer. Yeah. And I joined when it was literally in a garage, classic <laughs> uh, sort of California story. Um, 
but then by the you know but then we grew to like a few hundred people and then eventually it was acquired by by my in a very yeah in a very interesting twist uh tell me it was then acquired by microsoft so i ended up at microsoft seven years later but obviously with an entirely different experience an entirely different journey how did you approach the the sort of more traditional corporate environment that microsoft was did you feel that you brought something to the table that you wouldn't have if you had started there as a as a fresh grad um, and did you feel that you outgrew it very quickly because of the previous experience you had? They kept us as independent entity, uh, and and because Tell Me was really we were pioneering sort of voice recognition technology, uh, and they really wanted us to continue to in, to build that technology. So we didn't get to sort of deal with Microsoft corporate much during the first few months. Uh, but then after six months, I left to go to business school uh at stanford and so i missed and then the next two years uh they went through that process later in my career though i did have a very similar experience uh where i had started a company snippet and it was acquired by yahoo and then uh, i had to actually transfer a lot of my skills into a very large into having a yeah. big job in a very large organization and that was a very and that was that was very much what you're alluding to what is the year that you finished stanford 2009 okay and what did you do after that uh, well, this was another um, sliding doors moment uh, where a very well-known investor uh, called Vinod Kosla had come to Stanford to give a talk, and uh, and I really liked. And and it's funny because he was actually in you know his firm, previous firm, Kleiner Perkins, was an investor in in Tell Me, where I had worked uh, for many years. Um, and I really liked his talk, and so on his way out, I just stalked him for a business card uh, and dropped him an email, uh, and then we I just went through this process of interviewing with him uh that took like three or four months where i'd go just spend time at the office they would he would ask me the most interesting questions and then have me think about them for two weeks and come back and answer them uh i remember one of the questions he asked me is would you buy a newspaper the san francisco chronicles which was the biggest newspaper in the bay area at the time he asked would you buy it for a penny if you could uh, and it's funny because obviously newspapers were in decline because of yeah my media uh, but it wasn't as obvious as it is today. Uh, and then after three months, I was very fortunate enough to to, to get the job. And then I joined Kosla Ventures as their first principal. And that was my foray into the venture capital. And was it at the same time that you did Snippet or was that a sep- at a later point? No, that was a later point. So, so I had a somewhat, uh, I think, maybe different transition than most where a lot of folks are founders and they become investors. Yeah. Uh, I was sort of an engineer. Uh, and then I was an investor. And I really enjoyed being an investor. Uh, but then in, in, in 2011, something uh, very interesting happened, which is obviously the Arab Spring. Yeah. And at the time, I had been an investor for two years. I was investing in companies um, in, in the U.S. I was on a number of boards. Um, but when the Arab Spring happened, one thing that really, first of all, it had two, it had obvious two effects. One is uh, it made us all excited about doing something different and, and innovative and new. Uh, you know, I had friends who were taking huge risks in Egypt. And I was here in a very safe job uh, because, you know, starting a company might be too risky. Um, and so it was sort of a, a drive for us to, for many of us to think about sort of a, our life's purpose in a sense. Uh, but the other, uh, the other sort of thing that the idea that I saw from the, the, the Arab Springly is the role of social media. You know, I think it's, it's often lost. This was truly the first uh, sort of online organization of, uh, of, a, of a mass protest in history. Um, and even reflect about what happened then. If you remember the very first time, you know, Magnus Lasker issued issued a uh, a press release. A, a press release. 
they put it on Facebook. Yeah. It's kind of mind-blowing. Like yeah. Egypt really pioneered the use of social media by government. For sure. This never happened anywhere else in the world. Yeah. Um, and 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 what hit me is how inefficient a lot of you know there was really no platform here in, for for sharing great articles uh, or great content about interesting topics. People were doing it on Facebook, but Facebook wasn't really built for that. And so I decided to actually start you know quit my job and start a company. Uh, and that's that's the impetus behind Snippet, which was a social media place that allows you to share articles uh, around topics of interest, articles and videos around topics of interest. And did you do that from the U.S. or did you come back to Egypt at that time? No, no, no I sit in the U.S. I sit in the U.S. and it was mainly it was it was getting a lot of inspiration from what was happening in use, Egyptian use of social media. But the platform was 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 mainly used by both Americans and by some people in the Middle East as well. You know, you're you're clearly someone who who likes risk and cherishes and relishes risk you know it's and i think also partly it was your age at the time you were young and you were trying different things i mean to to start a job to leave a job because you want to try something else uh i think most people when they find themselves in a good setup kind of cling to it and think okay now i'm all set now i will uh you know settle down uh or enjoy it or whatever but they don't they don't necessarily think of, you know, jumping ship again so quickly. But you've done that several, several times. Is risk a major uh, attraction for you? Is that something you're always looking for? Or is it like a subconscious thing that's like, you know, your baseline is risk? It's, it's funny you say that, Malek, because my perception is actually very different. Uh, if there is, you know, I, I don't subscribe to regretting, but if there is one thing I regret is not taking enough risks in life. Wow. It, th there was an element of risk to it, but it was also sort of the, the, the there was, you know, the, there was no real downside it's calculated to many risk. of these. It's a calculated that, move. It's calculated risk. And I, and I, and I, and I've seen founders across my career, uh, who are truly, truly are risk takers. Uh, and they are willing to take risks at way more uh, frequency uh, than I do. Um, and I think, and, and they're willing to sort of uh, convince themselves of things that are not true, but then in the process, they become true. Here's another way to look at it. Are you as risk conscious or, or, or savvy now that you have a family than you were then when you were single and you had no commitments, no responsibility? Or are you now a little bit more conservative? I do think I've gotten more conservative a little bit with time, uh, but also more appreciative of risk taking at the same time. Yeah, right. I became more aware, more conscious uh, uh, of, of 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 risk, and I and I also mm -hmm. think I've become more aware of the importance of psychology in managing it all. Mm. In what sense? Well, well, my, well, my parents are visiting, and and so uh, my mom was binging on on uh, on 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 Musa Ramadan last night. <laughs> and I, and I was, you know, I literally just sat next to her working on my laptop and, uh, and, uh, and, 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 and during one of the episodes, there's just like, you know, actually I, I find the scenarios sometimes really, really well written. I was watching, you know, this very, very profound. Um, and there was just two guys talking to each other in a horror and one told the other person, you know, it said that, you know, and he said that Nafsut said that Udonia. And I was like, oh, that is so profound. That is actually exactly the essence of entrepreneurship. Right, it's yeah. having that conviction about things, and then sort of turning the will of of of, of the arc narrative of history to sort of your own vision of the future and where you mm. what you want mm. to accomplish. And I think some of the best founders I have met, uh, they almost have a loose cannon in their brain 
Mm. Uh, where their assessment of risk is a little bit off. And that's precisely why they succeed. Yeah. I also think that fundamentally, the people who are, from what I can see as an outsider, the people who seem to be the most successful um, uh, in terms of reaching the heights in their in their industries tend to be the ones, especially in, in, in tech, who have a base of nerdy engineering, who are not just money guys or investors or there has to, I feel that if you have a base where there is a profound understanding of the tools of your trade, you make those choices that appear risky to the outsider, but are actually very well understood by, by you because you understand the underlying foundation of what you're buying or investing in or that people from the outside maybe not may may not appreciate as much. It's just an observation. No, I think and I think that's very valid and yeah, very correct. Yeah. So what happened with Snippet? So that that didn't last very long, right? No, I did that for two years, uh, and we we were very popular as a social media tool, and then Yahoo came out of nowhere and made us a. Uh, Marissa Meyer had just became CEO of Yahoo, and she really wanted to make Yahoo more social. Uh, that was probably a. Uh, uh, you know, one of the things, if I was a little bit more risk-taking, I would have probably kept going with the startup instead of selling yeah. it. Uh, but I saw that opportunity and uh, and I ended up going with with the acquisition. Presumably you found yourself unemployed after that? No, yeah, I acquired the snippet and asked me to be uh, to run media, a big part of it with the team. So I ran media. But, but did you stay? I you stayed, stayed, stayed on and years. did that then? There were, there were golden handcuffs ah, that made it hard okay. to leave, but I stayed for a couple of years. And w- why did you move on from there? It was too way too boring and way too stable for me. So, yeah, so maybe yeah. you're right. Maybe I do like taking a little yeah, bit of risk after a, all. There's a risk thing going on here. I'm I'm noticing a pattern, Rami. There's definitely a pattern. So, what happened next for you? Well, what happened next for me is I. Uh, this was the first time where I had did not have a job. So, if you know, just just think about it. I left Egypt 1994. This is all the way to 2016. 22 years where I always had something to do. I always had a very clear next step. I never left something without having, without knowing what my next destination was going to be. And I'd always ran to something. This was the first time in my career when I just ran away from something and not to anything. Uh, so I left Yahoo and, uh, and, and uh, it was a very tumultuous probably year. Where I had a lot of opportunities, but I but they all looked wonderful, and uh, I but also they all had drawbacks. I didn't know if I wanted to start another company. Uh, I wanted to start another company, but I also know just from my experience that it's not just about starting a company; it's also about having a great idea. Mm-hmm. And you don't just start a company for the sake of starting a company. This is probably one of my favorite Steve Jobs quotes of all time: uh, "If you don't have an idea, go be a waiter." Uh, yeah, absolutely. And and how old were you, Rami, at this point? Thirty-seven. I find it interesting that you you found. Did you uh, tell me how you felt about having this quiet time? Was it exciting for you, or was it nerve wracking that you had suddenly nothing to do? It was nerve wracking. It was nerve wracking. It was nerve wracking, and and part of it is, and I and 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 it was a great glimpse into what you know. It, it was. It's a privilege to have that in life by choice. Right, many people are forced to uh, to be laid off, or people work their entire career and then retire at sixty-two and realize that they're depressed and sure, don't know why sure, because sure. because because their life was defined by their career. 
And so it was a, uh, and I also didn't have a family at the time, uh, which would have been at least a, a foundation or a time suck, uh, you know, regardless of how you, you phrase it. Sure, sure. Um, and so it was, it was certainly tumultuous. It was very tumultuous. And what did you do with your time? Did you, did you, were you productive? Did you learn, did you learn a language? Did you pick up a new hobby? Did you panic? Did you start to panic about what your future was? I mean, what was it like? What, tell me what happened to you that year? Oh, all the above, uh, <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> I worked with a founder on a startup. I, uh, I almost, you know, I interviewed for a couple of jobs and got the jobs, but didn't take the jobs. I, that job, one, one job was like in the U S one was to run a, a business in Asia. So you were confused. You went through a confused phase. I, I, I went through a very confused phase for, for a few months, but then I, at the end of the day, there was still, there was a silver lining, right? I loved startups. Yeah. Uh, and I had been in, I, you know, and, and I had been starting to invest in startups and help startups and advise startups. And that was, you know, emerging as probably the right, mm-hmm. you know, it's sort of the, the, the trajectory of my entire life was working with startups. I was just not sure whether do I start one, do I invest in one? There was a couple of VC firms that wanted to, uh, wanted me to join, but I felt like it was just going to be again, like Coastal, where it's a big, where it's a firm and we're coming later investing and. And and what really also candidly what I love is a zero to one. Yeah, I really love having just working whether I do it myself or work with someone else to do it. But I really love getting the glimpse of an idea or the kernel of an idea and trying to make it into some form of reality. Uh, the idea of a product and then shipping that product and getting it in front of the user. Um, and and so I think that that zero to one was what I loved most, and that's really the story behind. Where I eventually, you know, where I ended up after that year, which is starting 1984 Ventures. So let's talk about that. So what was the thinking behind uh, 1984 Ventures? What what was the basis of the kind of venture capital firm you wanted to establish? So to me, I've always wanted to do, I think what I really wanted to do is zero to one, which is the very first check that, that works with founders. Talking about risk is probably the riskiest stage. It's by far the riskiest phase of investment, but it's also the one with historically the best returns. And so I didn't want to do another late stage fund. Um, I also wanted to build something that was sort of my my own that I get to shape with a group of other people, but I get to shape it with, with sort of how I wish I was treated as a founder or how I wish I was, um, I, I, what kind of support I wish I had uh, as a founder from my investors just bringing in that experience. So much more of a, of a, of a personal human contact. Precisely because the venture industry was not, I mean, the venture industry generally happens at later stage in the series A and the series B, and then you have a board, but at the seed stage, there's really no board. Um, And it's not like you're going to replace the founder, but you want, what you want is you want to have a, a personal connection with the founder so you can truly understand what their challenges are and you can guide them. Uh, and, 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 and that guidance is a function of many things. It's not just about giving advice. It's also about making them believe in their potential. You know, most founders aren't just limited, you know, aren't limited by what they can do. It's more that they're limited by what they think they can do. And to the extent that I can, as an investor, can explain to the founder a bigger vision here or, um, or push them or, or help them bring on board, uh, recruit a found, uh, you know, a co-founder or recruit uh, an executive that, that would be a dream sort mm-hmm. of a dream um, candidate for them. Do you focus only on the U.S. in your investments or do you look abroad as well? 
Are there areas around the world that you're looking at? Um, the Middle East, for example? We're 80% US, but we occasionally invest internationally. So we have you know, investments in Egypt and Cylinder. Uh, we've made other investments in Latin America, Chibou, but we, we're 80% US though. Uh, so we're primarily focused in the US. We invest, um, we, we invest opportunistically internationally when we find founders uh, th that we can connect to in industries we really understand. Uh, and in partnership with local VCs uh, that we sort of respect and want to work with. And when we see an angle where having a Silicon Valley investor would actually be beneficial or because we don't want just to be dumb money. Sure, of course, of course. Rami, that was great. That was so interesting. And uh, I thank you so much for being on the show. Really, really interesting story. Thank you. Thank you so much, Malik, for having me as a guest in your awesome show. That was Rami Adib, entrepreneur and venture capitalist investor, telling me about his life's pivot points and how they led him to begin his own purpose-driven VC firm, 1984 Ventures. If you're a member of the show, we'll have a bonus episode next week where Rami shares more on the volatility of the VC world, his entrepreneurial experiences, and his thoughts on crypto and the metaverse. You can find extended clips from our interviews on our YouTube channel and also connect with us on Instagram, X, and on LinkedIn. Thank you for joining me today. I'm Malak Fuad, and you've been listening to What I Did Next from ANT Media. See you in a couple of weeks' time.